Thanks, Lloyd. Um, our staff had a chance to view that video for the first time about uh, maybe a month ago, maybe a little bit more. Um, and I, every time I see it, I can't get over the fact that there's a church there uh, in Western Asia that wasn't there seven years ago, and that there are we have brothers and sisters in Christ being baptized into the family of God that we will spend eternity worshiping with and we will, we will likely never know them in this life and yet we are family with them and we will worship with them for eternity. How amazing is that? That is just absolutely incredible. Um, kind, of, kind of fun, they, their church meets in the afternoon so they actually just finished their meeting together, gathering together as a church to um, spend time in God's word and to worship together. And, you know, first service, we literally kind of did that alongside them here. And second service, we enter into that as they're kind of moving on about the rest of their day. And so we're going we're gonna to do what we do every week, which is open up God's word and see what it is that he has to say about himself and what that means for us. And so if you've got a Bible, you want to open up to Luke chapter 11. While you get yourself situated, um, if you're listening on the podcast or you're watching with us online and you'd like an opportunity to see the video that just played, and my, my encouragement for you would be to be able to see the video that just played, uh, we can't just share it um, via email or we can't post it anywhere, but we will have an opportunity for you to be able to see that if you were here and you'd like to see it again. On uh, the 19th, that's this week, August 19th, at 6.30 over in the canopy, which is the upstairs part of the children's wing, uh, we have a monthly missions prayer time that we would, we'd love to invite you to come and be a part of. We're going to play that video at the start of that prayer time, so you'd have an opportunity to see that either again or for the first time if you're watching online or listening via the podcast and you didn't get a chance to see it. I would encourage you to come be able to see that video, but then also be able to go before our Heavenly Father in prayer on behalf of not just our team that's in Western Asia, but our missionaries all over the world, uh, that God would continue to work according to his power through willing people to proclaim the gospel to every tribe, nation, and tongue. So you can come and take part in that. Um, we're going to take Luke eleven thirty-seven to 54, which is down to the very end of the chapter. We're going to close out Luke 11 this week. The title to this sermon, as you can see there on the slides, is Hard Truths for Hard Hearts. There's an alternate title that I didn't feel like felt good to like put on the internet for all of history. That alternate title is uh, Poop Fish Need Jesus Too. Let me explain to you why. Amen. Yeah. You don't even know what that means, but it sounds good. Um, let me explain to you what I mean by that. In 2009, my wife and I had just gotten married in June, and then in the early fall, uh, a ministry partner that I was doing student ministry alongside at a different church, we took a trip to the other side of the world, actually to Southeast Asia, because we were looking for a place to be able to take students within our student ministry to go and to serve alongside some existing missionary work. And so we made contact with a Vietnamese man who was doing ministry at one of the most unique places on earth that's actually in Cambodia. In the middle of Cambodia, there's a lake called Lake Tonlesap. And every year during the monsoon season, that lake swells and gets very, very large. I mean, it takes up a significant portion of the interior of Cambodia. And then when the monsoon season ends, it slowly recedes back to its normal size. Think like one of the Great Lakes. That's the size and the scope that we're talking about. When you're on this lake, it looks like you're on the ocean. 
a uh, three villages worth of Vietnamese people have found a way to live their entire lives on that lake. They fled Vietnam um, for their own safety. They rushed into Cambodia, and there's tension that exists between Vietnamese and Cambodian people. And so the Cambodian government actually said, sure, you can live here, but you can't own land or property. And so these Vietnamese people said, okay, we'll live on this lake. And there are people living on that lake who are my age who literally have never stood on solid land. They have lived their entire lives in one of these three floating villages on boats that is a house with like a little front kind of porch area. And they tie these boats together in three separate places around the lake. And what they do is that they fish and they provide 80% of the protein that Cambodia eats in the course of a year. Now they can't even take that to the market next to the lake to sell it. Some Cambodian individual has to go out into these villages, purchase the fish, take them back to the markets and sell them. It's really a remarkable place. And so my ministry partner and I made contact with a Vietnamese man whose family had fled Vietnam to America at the same time. He grew up was saved by God's grace and has a heart for his Vietnamese people. And so initially, in order to share the gospel with him, he went to Vietnam. Well, Vietnam found out he was a missionary and kicked him out. And he said, where else can I go? And he heard of the villages that live on this lake and he gave his life to serving them. So we made contact with him. He said, I think there's a way that you could bring students out here to serve within the work that um, I'm doing. And so my ministry partner and I, we got on a plane, we flew over to Cambodia, got to the airport, drove to a house that was kind of on the edge of this very large lake. And we met this missionary and he started telling us about the work that he was doing and what it looked like. And we spent one night there. And while we're there, he was telling us about all that he's been able to do for these Cambodian people in terms of just helping them live healthier lives. Like he's taught them how to filter water because the water from the lake constantly makes them sick, which makes sense because they wash dishes and clothes in the lake. They go to the bathroom in the lake and they were just drinking the water. They have stomach issues all the time. We taught them how to make these portable water filters and put them in their houses so that they can clean their water. He was telling us that one of the other things he's taught them how to do is raise for themselves another protein source, which in this case is pigs. And so they will build these pig pens literally off the side of their house and they'll keep two or three pigs in them and like raise these pigs that never touch land and live out there. And then underneath the pigs, they've learned a way to grow and harvest other types of fish that aren't available in the lake that then they can eat as well. And so we go out onto the lake. We were going to spend two nights out there. And there's a family that the first night has been gracious enough to invite the missionary, my ministry partner, and I, Brad, into their home and serve us dinner. And so we're there inside their floating house. It's the most surreal experience. And they set down a plate in front of me, and there's a whole fish on the plate. Like cultural experience, bones still in it, eyeballs looking at me. It had been cooked, but it looked like at any moment it could flop off of that plate and back into the water. And so we pray. My ministry partner was braver than I am. He just grabs his fork sticks it in there, takes a bite, and he starts to chew, and there's no expression on his face, none. And I'm thinking, I don't know what that means exactly. But 
I know in my head that culturally, it would be very, very rude for me to not eat everything that's on my plate. They've made a sacrifice in order to feed us. And so I stick my fork in there. I kind of pick around some of the bones. I get some meat. I put it into my mouth. And as I start to chew, I start thinking, this came from the pigs. Like this is one of the fish they grew underneath the pigs. I'm getting some flavor. And I think, these fish grow because they feed on pig poop. This fish tastes, I'm not kidding, exactly like poop. There's no fish flavor. It's all pig poo flavor. I've got to eat the whole thing. And we had used, you know, their filtered water plus some iodine. And it's also like, I don't know how much water I can drink to try to just bite water. And like, it was a long dinner. But I couldn't get over the fact that what I was seeing on the plate was a delicious looking meal that tasted like poop. Poop fish. This passage that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 11 is the popular passage where Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, you clean the outside of the bowl and the dish, but the inside is full of greed and evil. Y'all are some poop fish. But there's good news because the gospel is for poop fish people as well. Amen? Amen. I'm going to read this passage. I'm going to start in verse 37, close out Luke chapter 11. If you've got to open, follow along with me. As he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. Fools! Didn't he who made the outside make the inside too? But give from what is within to the poor, and then everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, you give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, you love the front seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, you are like unmarked graves. The people who walk over them don't know it. One of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. Then he said, Woe also to you, experts in the law. You load people with burdens that are hard to carry, and yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. You build tombs for the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore, you are witnesses that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their monuments. Because of this, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, so that this generation may be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible. Woe to you, experts in the law. You have taken away the key to knowledge. You didn't go in yourselves and you hindered those who were trying to go in. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely and to cross-examine him about many things. They were lying in wait for him to trap him in something he said. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you that we can come and worship you for who you truly are. God, that you are eternal and constant and unchanging regardless of our circumstances or how it is that we're feeling. God, thank you that we 
know that you're kind and gracious and loving and you long to meet us in our seasons of life and remind us of the truth of who you are. God, I pray you would do that this morning for each and every single person in here. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. God, these are hard truths. God, would your spirit convict where we need to be convicted? Would you lovingly and graciously shine the light of your kindness into our hearts and display for us places where we need to step into greater submission to your rule and to your reign, God? And would your Holy Spirit empower us to do so? God, teach us more of who you are. Teach us more of what it means to be your people and to be submissive to you. Mold us and shape us into your image, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's how we're gonna do this. We'll, we'll set the scene a little bit here. And then you'll notice there's the overriding statement about the outside and the inside of the cup and the dish. And then there were three woes given to the Pharisees and then three more woes given to the experts of the law, the lawyers. So we'll work our way through those. And my goal is to put those into language that makes sense in 2021. So we need to do a little work to like lift the principle out of the context and then see how it would still apply 2,000 years later. And then we'll finish by celebrating the good news of the fact that there is one who has lifted our burdens. Amen? We'll spend some time rejoicing in the gospel. Here is the main point. Only the gospel can break a hard heart. And the good news there is that the gospel absolutely can break hard hearts. And if that weren't true, none of us would be saved. Look at the first verse of this passage, verse 37. As he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. Jesus goes to eat at a Pharisee's house. Now some reminders about Pharisees. They have a really bad rep in our day. We see the word Pharisee and we think, ugh, they are the worst, mostly because we attach this passage. They're hypocrites. They load people down with rules. We take the woes and that's what we think of when we think of Pharisees. But if you had been a first century person, either present here when this is happening or reading about this as a faithful Jewish person, your thought about Pharisees is that they were literally the best They were highly, highly respected individuals within Jewish community. They were religious, political, social, cultural leaders who were zealous about the people of God, worshiping God in truth. They gave their lives to trying to define how that best happens. So for Jesus to speak a woe against them, we see it and we think, yeah, that sounds about right. Someone in Jesus' day would have read this or heard about this and thought, how can he say that? to the best of the best among us. It would have been almost offensive to read this. And so Jesus goes to dinner at a Pharisee's house. Now, why does that matter? At this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has had dinner at a number of people's homes. He had dinner at Matthew's house with all of Matthew's tax collecting and sinning friends. He's had dinner with another group of Pharisees at a different time. He went to Mary and Martha's house, and now he's with this group of Pharisees. And I'm pointing that out because it's important to notice that no one is unworthy of Jesus's time, attention, and ministry. 
not a group of tax collectors and sinners, not a group of women who are often overlooked in this society, not a group of Pharisees that we think are the absolute worst. And I point that out because no one is unworthy of Jesus's time, attention, ministry, and salvation today. And it's worth keeping that in mind. Even those that we would say are the worst of the worst, the most hypocritical, furthest from God, they're worthy of Jesus' time, his attention, his ministry, and ultimately he's able to save. So Jesus goes in to dine with this Pharisee. And then we're told in the second half of verse 37, he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. Jesus walks into this Pharisee's house and he just goes straight for the table. And the Pharisee cannot believe that Jesus would not first wash his hands. Probably the closest thing that we have to that in 2021 would be in like Eastern Asian cultures where you're supposed to take your shoes off when you go into someone's house. And that's a matter of like respect and honor for the house that you're going into. It's not that you get into the entryway and then you take your shoes off. It's that you literally take them off outside the house because they're dirty and you leave your shoes there. But this goes even one step further than that because this isn't just a matter of honor or respect. For the Pharisees, this is a matter of ritual purity, religious purity. Now, the Old Testament law didn't say that everyone had to wash their hands before every single meal that they ate, but the law did say that you weren't supposed to eat anything unclean. So in a Pharisee's mind, it would go something like this. Well, what if you had touched or come into contact with something unclean during the day and then you touched your food? Now your food is unclean. So it's better to be safe than sorry. We better just wash our hands before every single meal so that we don't accidentally or unintentionally end up transgressing God's law by eating something that has become unclean. The Pharisees would make a fence around God's law that would help you stay away from it. And so washing your hands was a way to make sure that you didn't break God's actual law, which said, don't eat something unclean. Jesus doesn't wash his hands. The Pharisee sees that. Notice that he doesn't say anything. He just thinks maybe some rather like nasty thoughts about Jesus. And like we've seen Jesus do numerous times, he knows what this Pharisee is thinking and he capitalizes on the opportunity. And what he does is that he says, Pharisee, y'all are some poop fish. You clean me outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and evil. And if you're one of the Pharisees, you would have been thinking, greed and evil, I thought we were talking about dishware. Like, we're just, we're just worried that you wash your hands, Jesus. And Jesus says, didn't he who made the outside make the inside also? And then he says, Give from what is within to the poor, and then everything is clean for you. Jesus makes this about the heart. He makes it about the Pharisees personally. You're all sorts of worried about the externals, Pharisees, and those externals aren't completely unimportant. We'll see that in a minute. But if you focus on the externals without getting the internals right, you're like a fish served on a plate in Cambodia that looks delicious but tastes like poop. And so Jesus launches into a series of three woes toward the Pharisees. Again, I'm gonna try and take these, get sort of the timeless principle lifted out of it for us so that we can see 
what Jesus might be saying to us. And a quick word about woes. We've mentioned this before in the Luke series as well. When Jesus speaks of woe, it's not just like a strict condemnation toward someone. Jesus speaks a woe and it's like a lament. There's anguish and sadness in it because the truth of that woe leads to eternal consequences and Jesus knows it. So there's absolutely a warning in the woes, but it's a warning that comes with great heaviness and sadness for Jesus. It's like he's saying, oh, it breaks my heart that fill in the blank is true. And so in verse 42, Jesus gives the first woe. Woe to you, Pharisees. You give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. So let's kind of lift sort of the principle out of that. And if Jesus were to potentially speak a similar woe to us today, he would say something like this. Woe to you who love religious activity more than you love God and your neighbor. Now, I want to like address the fact that for some, you saw the word justice in there and some walls came up right away. For some, you saw the word justice and you got nervous because you were like, maybe Tim will just skip it. For some, you saw the word justice and you started formulating the email that you want to click send on right when this sermon is over. And for some, you saw the word justice and you can only think in terms of our current cultural setting. The word for justice here. Jesus says, you're very concerned about getting your tithe exactly right, even down to the smallest of spices, but you bypass justice and love for God. The word there in Greek is krisis. It's actually a unique word for justice in the New Testament that means more toward the side of like legal judgment. So you bypass correct legal judgments and love for God. It would be to, to say that the Pharisees give a tenth of even the smallest of their spices, but they neglect or bypass loving God and making right judgments in how they care for and interact with the people that are around them. And you put it into the context of everything that Jesus is saying here. And Jesus is likely talking about making right judgments in terms of how these Pharisees use their financial or physical resources. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> in relation to the poor. Can I have a water? <laughs> really, really weird on the podcast. Okay. <clears throat> in the Bible more generally, the most common New Testament word for justice. Oh, thanks, Rick. The most common New Testament word for justice is a word other than krisis. That word is often translated as either justice or righteousness, and it appears all throughout the New Testament. Here, Jesus, like I said, is talking about right judgment, and it gets rendered as justice. In the Old Testament, in Hebrew, the words for righteousness and justice are the same. So generally speaking, when the Bible talks about justice... It's talking about acting in accordance with what is right or righteous. Now, I'm going to do some brief, dense theology for just a second. God is just because he is righteous. 
His perfect righteousness makes it so that it is impossible for him to be justice or for him to be unjust. So go with me here. Were God to be unjust, he would not be righteous. And were he to be unrighteous, he would inevitably be unjust. Jot all that down. Think about it later and let your mind kind of explode. God has to be perfectly just because he's perfectly righteous. Were God to be unrighteous in any way, it would inevitably lead to him being unjust. And were he to be unjust in any way, we could not say that he is perfectly righteous. He must be absolutely both for him to be either of them. So Jesus accuses the Pharisees here of bypassing justice, right judgment, And their lack of justice is evidenced by the fact that they don't treat properly those around them. To be a follower of Jesus is to love God supremely. To be a follower of Jesus is to submit to God continually, to his rule and to his reign as king. And to be a follower of Jesus is to image God humbly. That means that we love a God who is perfectly righteous and perfectly just. It means that we submit to what he has to say about that which is right or righteous and that which is just in all things. It means that we act in accordance with what a perfectly righteous and perfectly just God defines as right and wrong. And we act in accordance to what a perfectly righteous and just God defines as right and wrong above the political spectrum in our current context and above the cultural and ideological camps of our current context. God's sense of righteousness and justice is consistent across every culture and across every era of history for all of eternity. That means that what is righteous and just in 2021 America is also righteous and just in 1849 in Western Europe or 1520 in Asia or 260 in Egypt. Our day and age here in the U.S. has unique justice issues that our country and the church here in America is trying to sort out. In fact, how we talk about and define some of those justice conversations is a battle that is raging within the evangelical church today. What isn't changing is what the standard is. What never changes is that which is eternally defined by God as being righteous and just. He has set the standard for what is righteous and therefore what justice is. And to be his people means that we submit to what he says and by his spirit, we live and act accordingly. Now, does that mean that there aren't difficult conversations that need to take place about how it is that we take the eternal standard of righteousness and justice and apply it in very complex, difficult societies? That's absolutely true. Those conversations are difficult. Oftentimes those conversations bring faithful believers who love Jesus into sharp contrast with one another. But the standard doesn't change. It never changes. It will never change. You could drop yourself in any culture in any time and the issues might change, but the standard of righteousness and justice never will. That's because we worship a God who is perfectly righteous and perfectly just and he has set the standard for what it is for his people to thus be righteous and just. Now notice two things here. 
Your love for others as displayed in your righteous and just treatment of them is inextricably tied to your love for God. We are to love God chiefly, and if we do so, we will necessarily grow in our ability to love others according to his word and to his standard. When or if we love something else more than him, in the Pharisee's case, their image, then we will necessarily and inevitably neglect loving others well. We will bypass justice. The second thing, notice that loving God and your neighbor does not mean that you don't take seriously the external commands of righteousness. Jesus says, these things you should have done. By all means, get your tithe right, Jesus says, but do them without neglecting justice and love for God, loving your neighbor and loving God. Doing the second naturally begets the first. Loving God supremely brings us into ever deeper internal submission to his rule and to his reign. And as we're brought into that submission, we long to get the externals of holiness right. We want to be obedient. There's the first woe. I promise we'll go faster from here. Okay, woe number two. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, you love the front seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. To take that principle and get it into our time today would be to say, woe to you who love the adoration of others more than you love the unconditional love of God. Jesus highlights that the heart of the Pharisees is to be worshiped and adored rather than to worship and adore God. They would rather be held in high regard in the synagogue or out in public Uh, than they would to hold God in high regard, both in the synagogue and in public. When I was studying this over a year ago in preparation for this series, I went through the book of Luke slowly just for sort of my own devotional time. Next to this woe in the notes area of my Bible, I jotted down the following. Performative religion has received its full reward in the applause of others in joy. That's where it'll end. Like if you do what you do so that you get the applause of others, then congratulations, you got the applause and that's your reward. It's over. Jesus says you want the externals to gain you applause, but the internal reality will gain you no favor when you stand before the Lord. Woe, anguish, sorrow, lament. Number three, verse 44. Woe to you, you are like unmarked graves. The people who walk over them don't know it. Let me lift that into our current language and then I'll explain the context a little bit. That would be like Jesus saying to us today, woe to you who lead others to death under the guise of leading them or guiding them to life. What was the complaint lodged by the Pharisee in his mind about Jesus? What was that Jesus' hands were unclean or potentially impure? And what does Jesus say to the Pharisee here? You're like an unmarked grave that people walk over and become unclean. For a Jewish person to come into contact with anything dead or anything that a dead thing had touched would be to become unclean. And so Jesus says, you're like unmarked graves. You think you're leading people to life, but you are causing them to walk right over death. You lead others to death and you think you're helping them. And what's even worse, Pharisees, you lead others to death and you've convinced them that you're helping them. You have the external air of leading people to life, but the internal reality is that you are headed toward death, spiritual death, and you're taking others with you and woe or anguish. And in the middle of that, Jesus just scathing rebuke here. One of the experts in the law, 
pipes up and says, uh, teacher, when you say these things to the Pharisees, you insult us too. Now remember, these lawyers, the experts in the law, it's not like a lawyer that we think about today that would try cases in a courtroom setting. And lawyer was an expert in the Old Testament law. So the Pharisees, they're concerned with helping people apply the law correctly, get it right, live it out correctly, worship God correctly in the way that you act. These lawyers, they were concerned with interpreting the law correctly. So typically a lawyer and a Pharisee would go hand in hand, or some lawyers and some Pharisees. The lawyers helping make sure the interpretation was correct, the Pharisees helping to ensure that the people applied it correctly. And so one of those lawyers pipes up and says, hey, while you're rebuking the Pharisees, you're insulting us too. And Jesus says, well, I got some thoughts for you as well. And he gives three woes to the lawyers. The first one comes in verse 46. Woe also to you, experts in the law. You load people with burdens that are hard to carry, and yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. Lift the principle out of there. Would be like Jesus saying, Woe to you who weigh people down with heavy religious burdens. Now, for the lawyers, those heavy burdens came in the form of extra-biblical rules to follow. The Old Testament is full of God's law, how God's people were were to relate to him and to one another as a reflection of his character. The lawyers and the Pharisees, they added to that already impossible-to-fulfill law in ways that weighed down God's people. The Old Testament law was intended to highlight the fact that God is holy and righteous and that we are sinful and that we need God's grace. That's what those sacrifices were for. Like We need a visual reminder that God's grace forgives our sin. The lawyers and the Pharisees, they took that law and turned it into this millstone that they hung around people's necks and all it did was drown God's people. And worse yet, Jesus says, you don't even do a thing to ease the burden. You put the millstone around their neck and then you just wave at them while they're sinking under a flood of minor external religious rules and everybody's missing the main thing. Jesus says, woe. You weigh people down. The next one goes from verse 47 all the way down to verse 51. And it's about prophets who were killed by the lawyers' forefathers. And now the lawyers and experts in the law, they're building monuments and sort of kind of christening and celebrating what their forefathers did. And Jesus says, you'll be held responsible for that too. To take that woe and get it into our own words, it would be like Jesus saying to us, woe to you who adhere to your cultural religion over the true religion of God. God's prophets were sent by God to call God's people back to right worship. Throughout the Old Testament, when confronted by one of God's messengers who was urging the Israelite Jewish people to repent and return to God, Rather than having soft, broken hearts, God's people most often got mad at the messenger. They would rather have clung to their false, unfaithful, idolatrous worship and practices than repent and return to God. In many instances, they actually killed the prophet rather than killing their sin. Jesus says, you're just like them, teachers of the law. You would rather hang on to the false worship of your current cultural religious heritage than return to the true religion of God and you will be held responsible for that. You're missing the major thing. 
Jesus says. And then the last woe is in verse 52. Woe to you, experts in the law. You've taken away the key to knowledge. You didn't go in yourselves and you hindered those who were trying to go in. That key to knowledge is a phrase talking about knowing God and how to worship him. With all of their laws and rules, the lawyers have hidden the truth to actual relationship with Yahweh, with God. Not only have they hidden it from others, but they've also obscured the reality from themselves. And so Jesus says in other places that the road to eternal life is narrow. And now he's saying to these lawyers, these experts in the law, you take a narrow road and you obscure it so much that it's impossible for anyone to access. You've taken something that's already hard and you've made it impossible. You've buried the entrance ramp to the road of life under a pile of false directions. There's so many minor things that the major thing is entirely inaccessible. And look in verses 53 and 54 how the Pharisees and the lawyers respond. When Jesus left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely and to cross-examine him about many things. They were lying in wait for him to trap him in something he said. They're not laid low. They're not tearing their garments and weeping in repentance. Instead, they decide to hunt for the chance to trap Jesus. They aren't broken by their hard-heartedness. They're angry at Jesus. And so you take these sort of, the timeless principle lifted out of the culture. And if Jesus were to come and announce those woes to the American church, I want to offer a diagnostic. How could we know if we're like the Pharisees and lawyers in verses 53 and 54, or if we're being humble and submissive? And I want to offer you a question that you can ask yourself. Does hard truth make me broken by my brokenness or mad at the messenger? When you're sitting in a sermon, you're reading the Bible, you're discussing at a small group, you're engaged in a discipleship relationship, maybe you're having a conversation with one of your close relationships like your spouse or an accountability, accountability partner or your children, and you get a close-up view of your own sin and hard-heartedness, what's your reaction? Now, I want to grant some space here for the reality that oftentimes our initial response is defensiveness. But if given some time for some honest reflection, there are times where we might move after some honest reflection into a place of humility and ultimately submission to God's word. But the question is, do you typically land in a place of being broken by your brokenness or instead level your anger at the messenger? Sometimes leveling your anger at the messenger is literally like you get into an argument or you get into like verbal sparring. Sometimes it might look like bitterness or anger that sort of rises up in you. It could look like going out to the internet, typing into YouTube or Google the appropriate phrase for whatever your hard truth is here in the moment, and then finding a different voice that coddles your preconceived idea and or the image of yourself that you thought you had, and then sending that link on to the person that confronted you and saying, see, you're wrong. I found this person that agrees with me. That's hard-heartedness. To be soft and humble and submissive 
would be to be willing to take a long and hard look into the heart of God first. To look deep into his word and then to turn inward and take a long and hard look into your own heart with the help of the Holy Spirit and then be courageously honest with what's there. Let me just free you for a moment. There's a little bit of poop fish in every single one of us. There's not a person sitting in here this morning who's free from hard-heartedness. So let that go. It doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you someone who needs the gospel. Because the good news, truth of the gospel is that only the gospel can break a hard heart. And that's good news in Western Asia where they don't have access to the gospel And people like our team are preaching the gospel and God is breaking hard hearts there and bringing them into the kingdom of God. And it's good news for people who sit in churches in suburban Bible Belt America and they've heard the stories over and over and over and over and over again. And yet there's still some hardness of heart there. Brothers and sisters, it is the kindness of God that he would take his word, hold it up as a mirror to your heart and let you stare at it long and hard. Why? Because he loves you enough to not leave you there. It's kind of him to show you the places on the inside of the dish that are still dirty and then by the power of his spirit to walk you through that by submission to him. That is the grace of the gospel for followers of Jesus. He is doing that for us all the time. Think back through the woes. Brothers and sisters, there's only one person who's ever not been subject to those. Who's loved God and his neighbor perfectly while also upholding every last bit of the law? Not you. Jesus. Who lived not for the applause of men, but rested himself entirely in the unconditional love of his father? Not you. Jesus. Who's not led a single human being to death, but instead has served all of humanity unto eternal life? That is Jesus. Who's not only lifted his finger to ease our burdens, but allowed himself to be lifted up on a cross in order to assure us that his yoke would be easy and his burden would be light? That is Jesus. Who was the true and great prophet who was killed not just by those who opposed him, but ultimately for those who oppose him? That's Jesus. Who flung wide open the door to eternal life? That's Jesus. You see, the point of this passage is not work a little bit harder to get the dish cleaned. The point of this passage is that we've all got some Pharisee hard-heartedness in us and the gospel can break it. Jesus is the one who can break through those places in our hearts humble us towards submission to himself and then mold us more clearly into the image of God. Amen? To go with the alternate title here, Jesus is the only fish to ever live who didn't have a little bit of poop in him. And submitting to the kingdom and living in the kingdom means allowing his grace, love, and mercy to save us. It means walking in that grace, love, and mercy and then allowing his authority and his power to be what shapes us. We put Jesus first. We submit to him continually and then we act and live out of that submission. 
if I sent you away and said, just work harder to get the inside of the dish cleaned, I would be the one leading you over unmarked graves to death because you can't get that clean enough. But instead, the good news of the gospel is that we can say, look at Jesus. He's done it for you. And now his power is available inside of you to shape you into the image of Jesus, to clean the inside perfectly and the outside progressively. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we'll close in worship. God, thank you for this morning and for your word. Thank you that the gospel can break hard hearts. God, we praise you for the way you're doing that among every tribe, nation, and tongue all over the globe, God, and I praise you for the way you're doing that in this room this morning. Lord, would your Holy Spirit help us to hear these woes from Jesus, take honest, courageous looks into your word and into our hearts, God, and then would your Spirit move us to submission, Lord. Help us to live humble and submissive before your rule and your reign in your kingdom, God, and shape us into people who image you well, who love you and love others, who rest ourselves in your unconditional love. God, help us to be people who don't weigh others down with heavy burdens, who don't cling to American cultural ideas of Christianity, but instead cling to the truth of your word. Help us to be people who don't obscure the roadway to life, God, but instead point people toward that narrow road and ultimately to the gospel, God. Would you do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And you can stand up, let's sing. So I'm gonna ask you what Alistair Begg told me not to ask you at the start of the service. How you feel this morning? I hope the answer is that you feel grateful. (laughs) That you don't have to spend your life getting the outside of the dish perfectly clean so that you could stand before a perfectly holy and perfectly righteous and perfectly just God only to find out that you're still guilty. But you also don't have to spend your entire life trying to get the inside of the dish perfectly clean only to find out that when you stand before a perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and perfectly just God, that you're still guilty. The good news of the gospel is that you can let the blood of Jesus Christ wash clean the inside of that dish, submit to God fully, and spend your life allowing him to sort of buff out the rough edges and the chips and the cracks and the dirtiness on the outside of your dish so that when you stand before the Lord, he sees the blood of his son and he says, clean. We come in to worship on Sundays in light of that truth. That the response to this passage is not go get it right perfectly in all the places the Pharisees got it wrong. The response to this passage is praise the Lord that Jesus got it right perfectly in my place and I can submit to him. Amen? Amen. That's the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, that can break our hard hearts. It was a pleasure to be able to worship alongside you this morning. Thanks for being here. We'll see you again soon. We love you.